Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Welcome to The Developer Podcast. I'm Natasha Kapoor, anthropologist and social researcher, and today I'm speaking with Brian Deegan, one of the UK's leading street design engineers, here at his office in Farringdon in London. Good morning, Brian. Good morning. Thank you for having us. My Come and pleasure. chat with you. Um, so you have a sort of this background in engineering, um, and you also have a background in sociology, which is quite an interesting mix. Um, and you've been working over the last 15 years or so extensively with um, Transport for London, various boroughs in London, especially Camden Council, I'm right, on cycling and healthy street initiatives. Um, would you say, I mean, you, it seems like you've sort of been at the heart of, of the shift from sort of car dominance in cities to including kind of alternative ways of moving around the city. Um, how, how's that been for you, kind of to be sort of like really at the heart of it for the last 15 years? Yeah, it's, it's been amazing. I've been holding on as long as I could, really. Um, when I first started working in cycling about 15 years ago, it was completely by chance. I'd been working in finance and I, and I wanted to do something that was a little bit nicer. <laughs> and I turned up for a job and it was on the London Cycle Network, which I didn't know existed. And I was like, you can work in cycling. <laughs> it was a, a real revelation to me because I'd always cycled and didn't know anybody was doing anything about it. So I, I basically said, I'll do anything. Like, sign me up and, and just started on that one. So really from that point on in like the early 2000s to now, I was trying to hold on to it. and and ride over like when projects come and go and rise and fall and collapse and get cancelled and ruined and the drama happens just go well where's the next thing going to come from how can I still keep doing this so uh, I managed to stay working in cycling for those 15 years even if my job title and roles had nothing to do with cycling I still worked in cycling and, and delivered uh, schemes in that regard so yeah it's been it's been a a bumpy ride that's and anybody that focuses on like a cycling is going to have a bumpy ride anyway yeah. i'm one of the few that's managed to make a career out of it but it's been uh, big highs and crashing lows in that one in the when the london cycling network went down i went down about seven layers in like the the council hierarchy to, to the point where the enough's enough no one was doing cycling anymore and it was only like that's why I know I'm one of the oldest that's been doing it because everybody else went off and did sensible things. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's been a it's been a bumpy but fun ride, and I wouldn't change it for anything. Well, so, and your base is in London, and obviously you have lots of experience working in London. But today, what we're really here to talk to you about is some important work that you've been doing in Manchester on the B network. Now, can you tell us what the B network is? Well, yeah, I mean, well, it is whatever people want it to be, really. But um, fundamentally, we're putting a new walking and cycling network across the whole of Greater Manchester and trying to do it in, a, in as efficient but like a powerful and output-orientated way as possible so we actually get more people walking and cycling. Um, at its current kind of planned state, it's, uh, it's well over a 1,000 miles worth of a network that we're putting in there. About 92% of the population will have ready, easy access to it when we get in there. And we're doing it all... At, um, and pretty knocked down prices as well to get that kind of level of infrastructure. So we're going for like, um, you know, cheap, dirty, quick solutions that have the maximum amount of input really and, and to get a whole network going 
rather than uh, perhaps planning it one step at a time and doing it like gold plated, um, you know, which might well take us a thousand years to to overcome all the the time we spent on building around cars. So we're trying to like uh, address things quickly on a on a kind of mass level. So uh, yeah, that's the the B network. It's got um, a few different elements to it. There's a real focus on crossings. So acknowledging the severance that like major roads cause to like communities and uh, allowing people to just get across that first and foremost. I mean, you could concentrate on resolving all those barriers, but again, that's the hardest possible route you could take. Um, so there's a few of those barriers that we're resolving with like massive transformations and huge pots of money and all the drama. But fundamentally, it's about avoiding those and connecting up the majority of streets, residential streets, which are kind of all right to walk and cycle on, making sure that you can get from one area to the other, you know, like a bound by motorways and A roads and stuff. So uh, there's that. And there's also like a, a sort of filtered neighborhood approach as well, where we work with the community and see what they actually want to happen in their area. So there's a whole sort of a range of things that they'd want, like school streets, play streets, like a pocket parks, parklets, whatever they, uh, they come up with. They come up with multi-story car parks, it'll probably be a no, but anything else that they come up with, uh, we want to throw that aspect into it as well. So, so it's those three elements together. So it really is, I mean, it sounds like an entire overhaul of Manchester's streets. Yeah, well, yeah, just to find, a, to plot a way through them, really, in the easiest possible way, it's acknowledging what's good and connecting that up. That's the, the fundamental approach there. But yeah, it's giving people an option you can say, right, yeah, we're going to have the best network in the world, but at the moment, we're trying to have a network. We're trying to give people an option. Because mm -hmm. uh, most of the times, in most areas of Greater Manchester, same with most of the regions around the UK, you get going on your street, you start walking and cycling, it's all right, but 50, 100 metres, you're going to come across something like this is this is looking quite daunting and I wouldn't want to take my kids across there and I'm a bit scared going any further in there. So it's trying to remove all those barriers bit by bit in the, in the most efficient way possible. So yeah, it's at stage one, give people an option. Stage two, make it good, you know, make it better and improve the quality. But we've got to give people an option at the moment. I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but um, how does it differ? How does cycling currently, how does, sorry, how does cycling currently differ in Manchester to say somewhere like London because we I mean there's been a big push in London over the last 15 years to get people on bikes um, yeah. and a ver various kind of infrastructure improvements to try and encourage that has there been a similar kind of investment in Manchester there has been investment in Manchester I'd say they're, they're quite similar really even though like a probably said investment in London's been a been a bit stronger and there's lots of basic needs catered for in there. But yeah, roughly the same amount of commuter cycling going on in, in Greater Manchester as, as there is in London. Uh, the, the big difference with London is central London where the real transformations happened. That's where Europe people are most of the best cycling cities in the world now in terms of the amount of people actually riding around and the sheer numbers. I always used to say like, you know, London's got more cyclists in Amsterdam or be, you can fit Amsterdam into Croydon. You know, it's that kind of debate in there. So there's uh, there's certain uh, avenues in Manchester where there's quite a lot of people cycling in there, but it's a little bit more dispersed and it's more like the kind of outer London picture, which is still the same as the rest of the country, fairly flatlining, trying to get some activity going. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a pretty good comparator. There's like a... There's always differences area to area that work in different powers of the state and the, and the, particularly the mayors have different powers and different influences and the money comes in from different areas like uh, 
in London, it's kind of like transport for London's got a pot, but you don't have to keep applying for different funding sources to get it in there. They've just got a pot of money that they can spend what they want. Whereas in Greater Manchester, anything we do, walking and cycling or road base, it's all straight to the Department for Transport to make a case for it, along with all the, all the other districts in there. So, but yeah, there were differences in there, but the actual, you know, it's, it's the UK, the streets look the same, people in there, say there's uh, probably been slightly more focus on shifting cars around in Manchester for the, for the last like 15 years and we really tried to address that in uh, particularly in central London but you go around the rest of London it still looks like most of Manchester and so so tell me about your great Manchester I should say okay. <laughs> what is so in terms of the B network I mean that it's citywide and how did what was your approach in in creating this sort of citywide approach? Because you've mentioned that there are different boroughs, just like there are in there there is in London. So, how how did you manage to get consensus? Because I'd imagine that was that would be quite a challenge. Well, yeah, I mean, all throughout my career in engineering, I've tried to involve people that it actually affects like stakeholders, as we annoyingly call them, in the in the, in the process to see what people uh, want. It really helped with building stuff in London, but we never really involved the. Uh, stakeholders in the planning of the networks in London and um, I felt that was a, a lesson that needed to be learned so in Manchester I said well let's apply it all the way down the line let's get people involved in the planning um, you know and uh, I, I, for years I've been trying to make it like a science planning for networks in there and we look at this and, and certainly that's the case in, in London at the moment strategic cycle network analysis is a brilliant bit of science there's nobody that's in the world that's done as accurate a bit of forecasting as that top-notch but you go around to the individual boroughs in London there and you go well what does that mean to us I don't know why is that line there whatever and you go but there's all this data behind it and go yeah all right I've got all this data of where my needs are as well what we're we doing with our hospitals and libraries and stuff so anyway what I wanted to do in Manchester is say, well can I involve people collaboratively from the first get-go to turn up there and not tell them that we're going to do anything but have them generate what could be done and that's the that's the fundamental approach we took with the with the B network. I've turned up to meetings. Um, we had one with each of the ten districts in there, and I said, "Well, you tell me what can be done here." Mm -hmm. I gave them a few rules and a few ways to approach stuff in there, mm -hmm. but like it was collaborative, like planning through to collaborative design, mm -hmm. hopefully collaborative delivery. You know, we, you want people involved in that because you're affecting their lives. And and I've known this from the past uh, as well in London. If you just dump something on people and go, this is for your good. It's not necessarily going to go down too well in certain communities mm -hmm. in there. And there's going to be a lot of resistance, a lot of kickback, where it's like, you tell me what to do, but I'll give you a few kind of rules to come up with it. And people come up with their whole ideas. So it's that whole message that if you want someone to, to believe something, they've got to come up with them themselves. If you kind of force it on there, they're never going to accept it in there. Got to create the conditions where they'll think the idea and go, right, this is my idea, and I go, yes. And then I turn up at meetings now. How can I help you do this thing that you told me you wanted to do? Mm -hmm. It's a very different thing. Have you done this thing that I've asked you to do? <laughs> they go, no. You go, well, because why? So um, that was the, that's the, the approach we took in Manchester to try and say, well, you plan it. Mm -hmm. I'll give you the tools in there. And, and that, that was refreshing. I think... Um, People thought, I mean, Chris, we're going to turn up at the sessions and say, right, you have to do segregated cycle tracks everywhere and you're going to have to pull out all your car parking spaces and we're going to have 40% of cars disappear now and, it, you know, we would have just had a big ruction in there. And But, like, we were clever in that. We said, okay, tell us why it's bad. 
all right, well, are there any ways of past that? Is there any ways we could get past that? And just by going through like a, a series of like a coloured pen scenarios, I mean, I was very strict with the rules of these pens, so people were fairly controlled in it, but he put together their whole network plan themselves as a kind of logic puzzle. Mm -hmm. And then there's always a bit in those sessions where people went, ah, oh, I get it. I can see how you can make that work. And it's basically taking this down to its simplest elements of how do you just get across an area? Mm -hmm. What's the shape of the streets? There's no point being theoretical if all you've got is like one A road and cul-de-sacs running off it. You've got to do something on that A road. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's, it's acknowledging the shape of things in the area you're in and the situation you're at and then plotting a way through it. And the fact that people did it themselves um, you know, was great. And then, and then the results, like if you're planning as well, if you're planning it top down, you don't know all the local like implications of it. Whereas if you've got people in the room that have lived in that area for 30 years and can tell you every single thing in there, that's a, that's a lot of a nuanced information that you wouldn't be able to find anywhere if you were planning in there. So it was really like uh, provide the scenarios and let people come up with the options themselves really, or be in a, in a fairly guided way. And it, you know, like it was like their ideas, but it was quite strict uh, about the the rules of the pens, as it were. And then Chris always starts his talk now. He never touched the pen. It's like one of the catchphrases of it. Like we didn't. This is your ideas, and it's like you know we kind of guided the approach. But for me, that that's the way to work. And I, I've got all sorts of techniques for bringing that into design as well, which is where we're at now. And so tell me about Chris Boardman's kind of. Um, Sort of, you know, he's championing this project. He's been made commissioner um, in, in in Greater Manchester to kind of lead the way on cycling and walking in the city. Um, you know, what do you think? What influence does that have having such a high profile kind of cyclist? Um, you know, involved maybe not in the sessions necessarily, but just definitely like his name on the paper. Oh well, yeah, I mean, he's you know, without blowing too much there. He's a total inspiration, isn't he? Like, you know, he's a hero. It's not like he can go into the room and go, what would that loser know? Tell that to his gold medals, tell that to all his achievements in there. So he's an amazing person to have around. Um, and what I like uh, about him as well, you can tell him something and you can see that it's a winning idea. And we'll just go, okay, we'll do that. There's no like a, there's no messing around with people like Chris and that when they're real high achievers in life. They kind of see the shortest way to do something and they want the effectiveness and he's really driven by the outputs of it. So, so that's great. Um, he, he infuses people in there. You've got like uh, council members and leaders who are quite excited about seeing him in there. Then we're passing all over the information in there and trying to get stuff built out of him, but at least they're excited to get into a room with him mm -hmm. and everybody wants to be associated with success and, and he is a success. And you know we're trying to make a success out of this one in there. So, um, so yeah, hell of a person. And certainly, like uh, me personally, he gets me into rooms that I wouldn't have got into. Why would have a leader of a council in Greater Manchester see me? They wouldn't. <laughs> but I'll see Chris Boardman, and he can say, "This guy's got a plan here. Listen to this." And then I can say my thing, and we can go, "Okay, that sounds interesting." And it's it's a different way of engaging. It really helps at the kind of national level as well that he knows the MPs and. People want to be associated with that success. So, uh, um, yeah, you can't do without me. I made a case for years about the role of champions, like uh, in planning and delivery. And it's, it's, and that was a lesson learned from London. When the London Cycle Network went down, we didn't have a champion. We had no political buy-in in there. There was nobody to engage with. We ran it as a pure project management exercise to deliver. And then when someone went, oh, we won't do that anymore, there was no one to say, 
hang about. <laughs> Why are you scrapping this project? Look at what they've done in our... So, yeah, I'd, I learned that lesson the hard way to, to get a real champion involved and stuff. And, and Chris is, you know, the best of the bunch, really. I think we'd all agree with that. So, so I think it's really interesting. But previously, when we talked about... You mentioned... Um, uh, Sherry Arnstein's kind of ladder of citizen participation and so it, it feels like you kind of understand that there's varying ways in which you can engage stakeholders you can either involve them kind of at the bottom of the ladder in a way that's very kind of cursory and um, you're basically just kind of informing them of, of what's happening and then at the top of the ladder you have at the bottom, manipulate I know I didn't it's away. basically yeah, that's what so you're doing cool. you're kind of you're involving them in, in something that is going nowhere there's no real power at the bottom of the ladder and at the top of the ladder is very much about kind of citizen power and engaging them in trade-offs so that you're you're very much giving them the tools in order to say um, you know what goes and what doesn't go um, and and so I'm, I'm interested in you know what's what's happened since those initial well first of all who were your stakeholders and who did you invite into the room because that's an important um, decision to make um, who's around the table and, and how did you decide who was there well, we left that up to the individual districts to decide. We suggested like a, a groups of people that would be interested, like you know, local walking groups and cycling groups and business owners and councillors and town centre managers, police even. So got a stakeholder list of potential people. It could be residents groups in there. But we left it up to them to decide so they could control it because they know the nuance better than, better than we do. As long as there was some representatives from the community in there that kind of knew the area. Um, then it worked well and, and like I say it's like a, knowing that with the staff as well so you want someone from the regeneration team you want one of your engineers you need one of your well, your land use planners in there you need someone from public health in there you know, so yeah we, we gave them all this list that these are the sort of people we're looking for but you decide I think people if they're involved in anything to do with like local authorities or decision making should know at what point they're actually affecting the decision and it should be transparent and honest. Mm -hmm. I'm involving you just so I can say I've just involved the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. That's that's really what we're doing here. I'd like to know that if I'd spent time, took time off work or came into the council and uh, took my evenings not watching telly to go in and have this big discussion. And I want to know the effect that I can actually change it in there. Mm -hmm. And I think people do have a right to know that in there. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, putting that over, I've, I've been going around uh, the last uh, month, meeting them all and talking them through that kind of ladder and how we effectively do consultations. And, you know, and every, you know, it hits hard with people going, yeah, we all know we're kind of being a little bit shifty in some areas and if an exec member's already approved it in there, then you're kind of just running through the motions. But um, I think fundamentally, if you're going to be a civilised society, you've got to consult properly. And people who live there that you're actually going to affect do have a right to change things. It sounds so obvious to say that, but that's never really been the case in the engineering industry, particularly when it comes to highway design. It's just done because shifting cars is good. There's like been this whole fat assumption sat over everything that's just not true. <laughs> but that's the assumption that guides everything we're doing. Now. So no one, I live next to the M1. No one asked me whether putting another two lanes in it was a great idea. <laughs> it's just because it's good. Shifting more cars around is what everybody wants. So crack on it and then it's just running through the process of doing it and uh, when you start actually changing and reallocating space towards people then yeah you've got to involve people in there because you, you know you're trying to promote a change and a shift and that's always going to be dramatic so 
to do that in the most open and transparent way was was what we were about. How how often do you see that happening as far as as far as you know in your line of work or otherwise? Is it is it becoming more commonplace or is it still very rare? Still, like uh, the engineering industry is is pretty poor on this. Still, I would say. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I've done a path least travelled, coming from sociology to engineering in there, and, and trying to get these stuff like uh, embedded. Um, it, it's getting more so. It's getting more so, but generally, uh, I still think the state of consultation across the UK is poor, and we're trying to improve it in. Uh, in Manchester, there's a few places in London that do it really well. Mm-hmm. You know, and we kind of tested this stuff out there. And, you know, you'd say Hackney and your Waltham Forests and your Camden do pretty decent consultations. Mm-hmm. But even with them, the stuff that kind of just seems to go through, mm-hmm. you know, where was the, the right of reply on stuff? Um, so, yeah, I think we've got a long way to go on, the, on that side of things. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted to do in Manchester was set it off like pure, so there was no like who's working behind anybody's back. There's no secrets in the projects. Mm-hmm. We're not like it. We could have been developing for like two years on the plan and then gone voila. But from my involvement to us having a 500 million pound published plan was about four months. So that that normally to make that kind of level of investment and planning, yeah, people would be looking at there's so much data and on that kind of scale, fifteen hundred miles across a whole city region. Like, how do you plan that? It would have been epic, you know, a five hundred page thing that took like a, hundreds of people years to get into. But or you can just go and ask the people in the area and do one session and get it all out, and everybody kind of knows it. So, so I, I think you know we got off on the right foot. Can I? Just now keeping that going. Yeah. Well, exactly. So, so when, when did you have the sessions? How long ago was that? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, like uh, last November. So, not the one, but the one before. Yeah, so quite, quite a way ago. And so, and where are you at it's now with the recently. project? And are you still in touch with some of those original stakeholders? Are they still included in, in the design process? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, once we'd done those sessions, we knew it wasn't perfect. So, we went onto the website and we published here's the initial things that people thought might be possible in your area. And then we had like 4,000 odd responses from the general public. So, so that was the first stage to so then like, oh, is it right? So the, the people involved in those sessions, yeah, we needed them to get going. And uh, to a large extent, some of the people that turned up were quite willing, but weren't really, really organized. So it's a question of like keeping in touch with them. We, um, uh, Chris instigated and, and worked to set up kind of new campaign groups that would help us. Because um, from our side of it, and, and others in engineering going, why are you setting up groups to criticize us? I had this the other day when I, I talked to a whole bunch of campaigners about how to be more of an activist and actually get stuff done. And they go, why are you training people to criticize us? And I go, because you need it to stay honest. And there's places that campaigners can go that I can't go. I'm like, uh, when I'm working in Manchester, I'm a civil servant and it's official secrets act and you're doing the project in there. Whereas people can ask questions high and low and, and make stuff uh, make stuff happen. So you need that kind of effective like a uh, citizen buying in there. So everybody that turned up to that meeting got right, that's our first list of stakeholders in there. How do we get more? All right, let's publish the map in there. Let's see who comes out of that one in there. Let's promote them to do little community meetings in there and see who pops up. And uh, lots of people have been popping up and there's a lot of interest in there and these new groups that were, were starting are great. So yeah, you need that grassroots support. 
And so and it, when you, you know, say you published the map online, can yeah. you tell me a little bit about what that looked like? And was it interactive? Or how did people feed yeah, comments? Yeah, it was interactive. They could like post comments on it. So it would and, and then you could see other people's in. comments on it. So ah, that, okay. that's quite, quite useful. And they go, don't go down there. Go down there. Why have you missed this bit out? Or, or that bit's got a horrific grading. Like all, all that kind of nuance, which is really good. And we kind of had like um, three sets of comments, really. One, really like to go that way. Or two, a bit of kind of nuance of what to look out when we get there. And three, just generally, we think this is great. <laughs> so pretty good. There weren't too many negative comments at all. To, to go through the process of going to an online map and hunting down your area and then go, I hate you. <laughs> Would, <laughs> didn't have too many. There's a few, obviously. But um, but yeah, so it's really good information. Then if you're actually planning and, and that's moving into a design brief, you've got a whole bunch of information of what people think about the, mm -hmm. the area and the route before you've even started. That That's gold dust. Mm -hmm when you're designing it uh, because you don't want to just have like the design engineer I'm just doing what I fancy and I, I like doing roundabouts so where can I put one of those it, it can't get like that you've got to get well what do people actually want now okay I'm, I'm meeting some kind of user demand here so uh, yeah re really useful in that respect this you're making it sound very easy I mean surely there were dissenters surely there were people who were, didn't want to give up their parking space or I don't know what, what well, were some of the so issues this is on that... the planning mm -hmm. the issues come in the delivery <laughs> right. that's when you come over or be the big planning issues that I tried to address in London of getting buy-in uh -huh. so like um, there's only one stage in my career in London that I had all 33 boroughs delivering something for cycling and then literally to the month the whole project got scrapped it's like oh I'd nailed it in there I'd up to like a like half the boroughs engaged most of them kind of well half not and some really only temporarily engaged as well so it's, it's not a great scene it managed to yeah because we did the planning that way all 10 districts bought into it mm -hmm. and signed up to it and had their plans in there and have all been pitching in and uh, I'm trying to do stuff in there so so yeah that I it's like it's easy when you've learned all the lessons the hard way <laughs> over 15 years of trying everything but mm -hmm. and you've got to go why do I keep headbutting this wall in there let's try a different approach in there mm -hmm. so really it was bringing the same approach to engineering when I started it was all like you'd build something and the people that hated it most were the existing cyclists mm -hmm. and again it made it really difficult to get more money to build stuff for cycling because why are you doing stuff the people that you're doing it for hate it mm -hmm. and uh so yeah, let's involve them in the process mm -hmm. so we can work up and understand the kind of nuance of it and then they're defending the schemes as it goes through. So that was a real good fix in London. It, it helped me raise the budget for cycling spend in London for years and years because we had so many people involved and actually people were then started supporting it and then we could draw down more funding in there. So I, I needed a fix for the kind of planning end. Mm -hmm. So that's why I would like a, and I'd, I'd tested that process out a few times like on a, on a local level um, and really like the, the backdrop to it was kind of like the mini Holland approach as well which are kind of focused on that kind of network planning approach albeit still a little bit top down in places but yeah it was a question of like having the fix for the planning having the techniques there for when we do the actual engineering and, and just involving people because it yeah like I say it's a bumpy ride and um, but with the the stuff that we're coming up with the real focus on the crossings was a big one and people kind of like that because it's not 
not like you're running down a residential street pulling out parking and, and annoying everybody. We're just like, when you get to the difficult road, you need to be able to cross it. Everybody can understand that. Yeah. They can see the barrier and they can see they want to walk or cycle across it in there. So we need to put a crossing in. Yes. Okay. And it's all right on the other side. So let's put lots of crossings in there. And that, that, that approach really of the importance of crossings to planning, uh, I learned that in about, about 2009 when the London Cycle Network was like um, cancelled, as it were, to be diplomatic about this. And so, yeah, it was kind of cancelled. And now I did a paper for the Transport Executive Committee and said, which bits of the network, 100 million pound network that we'd spent like the past like eight years doing, which bits do you want to keep? <laughs> was the kind of paper in there. I was going, well, what's the most important bit of the network? And I was thinking and thinking, and I thought, well, I was looking at where the most amount of cyclists were in there and where they were heading to. And it seemed to be like crossings like um, Coldbrook, Coldbrook Row in, in Islington and Osselton Street in there. Now, Coldbrook Row in Islington, everybody pretty much from the north and east who's cycling into town seems to head for that one crossing by, by Boris's old house in there. You're getting 14,000 cyclists a day down there. Looks like absolutely nothing in there, but you get across a major gyratory and a purpose-built crossing. I was like, if that went, where the hell would everybody come into the city of London from, from the north? So we've got to keep that one in there. And I looked at Osselton as well. And then I went around and plotted all these points. So I said, we've got to keep these crossings in there. So then the mental leap was like, why don't we just do more crossings then? <laughs> like uh, the route was completely secondary. The, the whole route and that became quiet way too came about because there's that great crossing. So everybody's feeding across from Hackney and the north to head to that one point. So really it's that point that's important. It wasn't the route on the way there. So let's just put points in and the routes are there already. And you can polish them up, make them nice and all the rest of it. So it's about that kind of focused delivery and looking at kind of like route enabled rather than route delivered. Did a paper for the Institute of Civil Engineering saying that um, like kilometer delivered per pound was the worst like performance indicator ever it's still because you're just like a, you're going to chase things that are long but you're going to throw loads of advisory cycling in there oh we did the 10 kilometers this year and it only cost us 60 grand because we just put some paint in what a brilliant cost per kilometer kpi that you've met there but if we do this junction if we do this crossing it's a very short distance <laughs> but by putting that crossing and you open up the entire area either side in there so so that was the approach to just focus on the stuff that's effective and effective right off the bat there. So, so just, just to finish, I, I wanted to ask you about the rules because one of the things I came across online was one of, one of you know, it seems like they were almost Boardman's rules. Like there were certain things that he put in place as well, like the, um, the notion of the 12 year old rider. Yeah. So the idea that if a cycle route isn't good enough for a 12 year old, then it isn't good enough, which I think is really interesting. And so it's almost like injecting, injecting the room with these people that you need to bear in mind, you know, like, um, uh, as part of the design process. So even if the 12 year old isn't at the table, you're still thinking about kids or you're thinking about kind of the, that, that type, that type of cyclist. Um, any, what, what other rules did you well, kind yeah. of infuse well, the well, room? There's with? quite a few. I mean, Chris is really good at distilling things down to the point that people totally understand and get it. The, the 12 year old one and the, and the child focus was an interesting one. We, we took a, I took technically a proxy for that of like a bikeability training. So if you're at level two bikeability, you can at level ones, you can move the bike around. Five year olds at level one, level two, you can kind of mix and most residential streets. Level three, you can deal with pretty high volumes of traffic. You can move across lanes and stuff in there. So, 
as 10-year-olds are trained at, at level two, and that was kind of a good proxy, and there's been people that have worked on systems and I've used it as well of saying what kind of level of bikeability would you need on this street. And every local authority has got bikeability trainers in there, so they could go down, well, what training would you do on the street? And you've got an expert who can tell you, and it's the proxy for the 12-year-old in there. And then we can start unpacking that even more and more. Okay, so I've got something that's level three. What does it take to make it a level two? Mm -hmm. And here's all the design decisions that we make of that. So um, my job really is to, is to look at what the policy is and unpack it for engineers so we can actually change towards it. Because mm -hmm. if I went to an engineer and just said, make it 12-year-old proof, all right, mm -hmm. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> but it's like, well, look at the, how tight those radii are. Look at the volume of traffic and the speed of traffic in there. You know, well, is there someone to leave your bike in there? Is it, is it a pleasant place? Or is there social interaction going on now? Put some benches, some trees, and, and start adding and adding to it to create the conditions where it would be sensible for a 12-year-old to ride down there. So that's, that's really where I come in. And I've got like a various systems that are developed or help develop that, that can break it down. So you're basically a translator. You translate from the language or the needs of people using the system into a language that an engineer can use. Yeah, so really the, the reason people get me these days is to facilitate projects and make them happen. So that means I have to talk everybody's language. I'm quite happy to talk to a land use planner or an urban designer or an engineer and I describe things in very different ways. Uh, I did a section on the Be A Champion course manual on this, that like if, you, if you're going to certain departments, you put things in certain ways, and it's all to get the same end result, we're gonna build the same thing. But yeah, but if I used engineering, speak to an urban designer, just gonna be horrified. Just think, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna ruin everything. It's gonna splash green paint all over my lovely clean lines and stuff. So um, yeah, that's, that's a large part of what I do really, knowing what everybody's up to. Again, working with the private sector as well and the developers and knowing what they're all about and right down to the construction one. So, and when I started, um, there weren't that many of us doing it. So you kind of had to, had to learn all the rules. Well, I used to work, I'd come up with the strategy and I'd plan it and go out and I'd do the analysis in there. Then I'd design it up and then I'd consult in it. Then I'd go out with the contractors in there and then I'd manage and monitor it in there. So I knew the whole chain. Um, it's, it's a shame people are kind of a little bit siloed now. And a lot of uh, the reason I did that five-day course is to let people, here's what everybody's looking at. So if we want to deliver something, and every one of these people are going to say no to you with whatever you're pushing through there. But if you talk to them in their language, it's going to be a yes. So a large part of what I do is to just like, uh, when everybody gets no on doing their good idea, I'm just turn it into a yes. Um, that's you know, fundamentally why people use me, because I'm quite persuasive and I know what they're looking for, and we can give it, and I can nuance it towards that. So, so yeah, it is, it is a little bit of translation. Mm -hmm. So if we think about sort of the, 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 the ingredients that are necessary in order to create, you know, if somebody were, were, were to think, okay, I want, I want to involve stakeholders in the planning phases, I want to involve everyone, engage, engage all the right people around the table and, and kind of get their buy-in and all the things that we've been talking about, um, what are what are those ingredients? Do you think um, that they need to have present, as opposed to you know, is it is it just a matter of, of getting the right people in the room? I, I, I think there's more to it. She Boardman said an interesting thing the other day. Said like you know, like Frank because he's an engineer, but that's not why he's involved in it because he's a good communicator as well. Yeah. And there's, there's knowing that side of it. So um, yeah, it can go horribly wrong um, 
dealing with stakeholders in the wrong way, mm. particularly when people have been working on something for two years and they've gone through the process and then they're meeting stakeholders and it's, it's the design and defend thing that we're trying to get away from. Is then people, you know, if, if you start um, questioning something and it's like you're questioning their, their technical capability and their, their professionalism and, their, and people can get really, um, you know, heads up about that as it were. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of that in there, like why would you change that, what's going on there? And, and a lot of my job is to really like uh, question why people are doing stuff in there, which should make me like universally hated that people have come up with these like uh, perfectly to standard things and I'm saying that's absolutely terrible for people walking and cycling there. But this is what I've been trained on for, for six years of my life in there. And I go, yeah, I was trained in the same way. And you know what? It's all about cars, isn't it? But you've got these people and these cyclists walking around in there. So it's getting that into the head of engineers that actually it's the people that live there that are important in this one. And what we need to do as a society is get them more active, not just pander to the needs of the angry kind of minority. Uh, what we've got is that most people want to walk and cycle everywhere and everybody gets it. It's just uh, when you're going through that locally in there, you will come up against angry voices in there and they can really dominate stakeholder sessions. Uh, if you're meeting people, I've been in many rooms and everybody that's going to turn up is going to be quiet against you. I've had like 20, 30 people screaming, shouting, crying at me and stuff. And it's, it's a fairly regular instance, in a, particularly if you're doing cycling schemes, to get that kind of response in there. So yeah, there's, there's method, methods of monitoring that one and you've just got to go, well, okay, tell me your opinion. I'm going to take that on board. But if you're actually doing a collaborative session in there, then that can really damage the, the situation. And there are skills of how to involve people in that one and say, oh, we're hearing it, you're gonna get your time. <laughs> but like, um, it's, it's working with the willing somewhat as well. When we're doing the planning sessions on the Bean Network, it was people that wanted to be involved in it in there. It wasn't the people that wanted to stop it. And this is why we let the districts choose in there, so they know the, the kind of characters in there. If you, I mean, I, I do like doing it in individual estates and with the people in there, and that's a whole part of the active neighbourhoods approach in there. Um, but yeah, like I say, when you, if you're just coming up with a plan and then trying to sell it to a community and defending it, they can smell you in a second that you're coming in there and it's a done deal and you're just pushing it on them and someone's already decided, some councillor made some deal with some businessman and it's kind of happening, all that stuff and you've got nowhere really to go. <laughs> but if you're turning up and it's something that you work with the local community on and it's their ideas, uh, uh, we've learned a lot of those lessons. Um, like uh, Waltham Forest is an interesting one. They, they put out postcards to the local community and say, what do you want? And then when they turn up at public sessions and they go, why do you not? Nobody wants that and go, actually 12 people asked for that one and they all live on your street. <laughs> it's a completely different approach now to just turn up going, I've thought of this, like in a silo, because I was asked to look at it by the people in strategy, and now I'm trying to defend it to you, and you just sat there just like taking the grief. Um, so yeah, there's, it's, it's been getting off on the right foot and maintaining that kind of a approach now. It's, it, you know, I was like first trained in government in the, in the open government era and it's all about being transparent and open. That's, you know, not so much the case anymore, but like uh, I bought into those principles and um, the way I've always designed and always worked on stuff is go, well, look at what the policy says. There's a lot of what we do here at Urban Movement in there when people go, why are you doing this crazy walking and cycling stuff? I go, read your policy. <laughs> 
this is a policy that your chief exec signed off on that all the MPs and, and it's all there, walking first, then cycling, then public transport. Cars are right down the bottom, so why, why are you putting them on the top in every single decision in there? So yeah, there's, there's ways and means of going about it. What we've got is that everybody wants us to do this stuff, but a few people are kind of stopping a lot of things happening. That's the, that's the sad thing, and that's why I think people involve people like me, because I'm just going to get it done anyway, because I know this is what people want. I'm involved and have tools and have evidence and data to back it up and go through. So so that's, that's how we get stuff done. And it, it shouldn't be this hard. And I, my, my dream scenario is we'll know what we can do, what we can design in right context, and you'll just do it. <laughs> And then you won't really need someone like me to kind of oil the, the wheels and, and to take all the flack and to, to push things through. It should be like, this is just the way we design streets. Um, and we are not there yet. <laughs> oh, Hopefully. We're getting there, though. And it's, it's really we encouraging are. work, what's happened in Manchester. Um, where are we at with the project? So you're starting to build, or you, you've, you've already built some of it. Yeah, we're on site with the first few schemes. And it's kind of like uh, we had schemes from the Cycling City Ambition uh, scheme that we kind of ramped up there and then oh when i went and met the senior people at transport for greater manchester said everything changes now there's not a scheme that isn't related to this project we've, we've got a complete change of focus so so there's bus schemes coming in that we're involved in that work great for people walking and cycling in there and a the whole lot of stuff that that's about improving capacity for motor cars in there. We've gone, okay, well, you maybe don't need that much extra capacity. Let's put in some pedestrian crossings and do stuff like that. So to an extent, there's quite a lot that's coming through there. It's not just the stuff that's related to the B network stuff. Everything's got to change. It's, it's a complete different approach in there. Yeah. It's got to be, and it's got to be integrated from the planning, from the council side. That's the my next focus, really, to look at land use planning and development and how that kind of feeds into it and make sure they're lined up, because it's got to be a system approach. Mm -hmm. And there was a really interesting bit when they were doing a mini Holland's in Waltham Forest that they went from having a mini Holland team to being a mini Holland borough. Now, they might have called it what's up, but everybody was just working towards the aiming now, whether they were planning or regen or like a refuge collection. They all kind of started working to it, and that's um, that's what we've got to get to in there in Greater Manchester. In there, and um, but yeah, so stuff's hitting the ground, there's more stuff coming through there. Um, I'm trying to get a handle on everything to, to make sure it's steered in the right way, but eventually, when people kind of know it and they've done a few things, it should just tick itself over, then and we can start you know transforming the city. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at at TC Murray. If you like this podcast, you should check out our upcoming Festival of Place on the 9th of July in London. Go to festivalofplace.co.uk.